You're listening to Wikisleep, a podcast designed to help you relax and unwind through calm, quiet storytelling. I'm your host, Adrian Sala. As a gentle reminder, this podcast is being turned into an app. The app will have all the same great content as the podcast, plus so much more, like sound baths, meditations, some really interesting ambient tracks, new stories, new narrators, and a whole pile of fun, interesting, and sleepy things. So I encourage you to go to wikisleep.com and sign up now for early and extended free access once the app is released. It only takes a few seconds to join the waiting list and will be super helpful for me once things are launched. Now, part two of Murder on the Links, a mystery novel by Agatha Christie that was originally published in 1923. In a moment, Poirot had leapt from the car, his eyes blazing with excitement. He caught the man by the shoulder. What is that you say? Murdered? When? How? The Sergeant de Ville drew himself up. I cannot answer any questions, monsieur. True, I comprehend, Poirot reflected for a minute. The commissary of police, he is without doubt within? Yes, monsieur. Poirot took out a card and scribbled a few words on it. Will you have the goodness to see that this card is sent to the commissary at once? The man took it and, turning his head over his shoulder, whistled. In a few seconds a comrade joined him and was handed Poirot's message. There was a wait of some minutes, and then a short, stout man with a huge mustache came bustling down to the gate. The sergeant de ville saluted and stood aside. My dear Monsieur Poirot, cried the newcomer, I am delighted to see you. Your arrival is most opportune. Poirot's face had lighted up. Monsieur Bex, this is indeed a pleasure. He turned to me. This is an English friend of mine, Captain Hastings. The commissary and I bowed to each other ceremoniously. Then Monsieur Bex turned once more to Poirot. Mon vieux, I have not seen you since 1909, that time in Ostend. I heard that you had left the force. So I have. I run a private business in London. And you say you have information to give which may assist us? Possibly. You know it already. You were aware that I had been sent for? No, by whom? The dead man. It seems he knew an attempt was going to be made on his life. Unfortunately, he sent for me too late. 
Sacré tonnerre, ejaculated the Frenchman, so he foresaw his own murder. That upsets our theories considerably, but come inside. He held the gate open, and we commenced walking toward the house. Monsieur Bex continued to talk. The examining magistrate, Monsieur Hotet, must hear of this at once. He has just finished examining the scene of the crime and is about to begin his interrogations. A charming man, you will like him. Most sympathetic, original in his methods, but an excellent judge. When was the crime committed? asked Poirot. The body was discovered this morning, about nine o'clock. Madame Renaud's evidence and that of the doctors goes to show that the death must have occurred about two a.m. But enter, I pray of you. We had arrived at the steps which led up to the front door of the villa. In the hall, another sergeant de ville was sitting. He rose at the sight of the commissary. Where is Monsieur Hotet now? inquired the latter. In the salon, Monsieur. Bex opened a door to the left of the hall, and we passed in. Monsieur Hotet and his clerk were sitting at a big, round table. They looked up as we entered. Monsieur Hotet was a tall, gaunt man with piercing dark eyes and a neatly cut grey beard, which he had the habit of caressing as he talked. Standing by the mantelpiece was an elderly man with slightly stooped shoulders who was introduced to us as Dr. Durand. Most extraordinary, remarked Monsieur Hotet. As the commissary finished speaking, you have the letter here, monsieur. Poirot handed it to him, and the magistrate read it. He speaks of a secret. What a pity he was not more explicit. We are much indebted to you, monsieur Poirot. I hope you will do us the honor of assisting us in our investigations. Or are you obliged to return to London? I propose to remain. I did not arrive in time to prevent my client's death, but I feel myself bound in honor to discover the assassin. The magister bowed. These sentiments do you honor. Also, without a doubt, Madame Renault will wish to retain your services. We are expecting Monsieur Giraud from Paris any moment and I am sure that you and he will be able to give each other mutual assistance in your investigations. In the meantime, I hope that you will do me the honor to be present at my interrogations, and I need hardly say that if there is any assistance you require, it is at your disposal. I thank you, said Poirot. You will comprehend that at present I am completely in the dark. I know nothing whatever. Monsieur Hotet nodded to the commissary, 
and the latter took up the tale. This morning, the old servant Francois, on descending to start her work, found the front door ajar. Feeling a momentary alarm as to burglars, she looked into the dining room, but seeing the silver was safe, she thought no more about it, concluding that her master had, without a doubt, risen early and gone for a stroll. Pardon for interrupting, but was that a common practice of his, Poirot asked. No, it was not, but old Francois has the common idea as regards the English that they are mad and liable to do the most unaccountable things at any moment. Going to call her mistress as usual, a younger maid, Leone, was horrified to discover her gagged and bound, and almost at the same moment news was brought that M. Renaud's body had been discovered, stone dead, stabbed in the back. Where? That is one of the most extraordinary features of the case, Monsieur Poirot. The body was lying, face down, in an open grave. The pit was freshly dug, just a few yards outside the boundary of the villa grounds. And he had been dead how long? Dr. Duran answered this. I examined the body this morning at ten o'clock. Death must have taken place at least seven, and possibly ten hours previously. That fixes it between midnight and three a.m. Exactly, and Madame Renaud's evidence places it after two a.m., which narrows the field still further. Death must have been instantaneous, and naturally could not have been self-inflicted. Poirot nodded, and the commissary resumed. Madame Renault was hastily freed from the cords that bound her by the horrified servants. She was in a terrible condition of weakness, almost unconscious from the pain of her bonds. It appears that two masked men entered the bedroom, gagged and bound her, while forcibly abducting her husband. This we know at second hand from the servants. On hearing the tragic news, she fell at once into an alarming state of agitation. On arrival, Dr. Durand immediately prescribed a sedative, and we have not yet been able to question her. But without doubt, she will awake more calm and be equal to bearing the strain of the interrogation. The commissary paused. And the inmates of the house, monsieur? Poirot asked. There's old Francois, the housekeeper. She lived for many years with the former owners of the Villa Genevieve. Then there are two young girls, sisters, Denise and Leonie Hular. Their home is in Merlinville, and they come of the most respectable parents. Then, there's the chauffeur, whom Monsieur Renault brought over from England with him, but he is away on holiday. Finally, there are Madame Renault and her son, Jack Renault. 
He, too, is away from home at present. Poirot bowed his head. A sergeant de Ville appeared. Bring in the woman, Francois. The man saluted and disappeared. In a moment or two, he returned, escorting the frightened Francois. Your name is Francois Harichette? the investigator asked. Yes, monsieur. You have been a long time in service at the village Genevieve. Eleven years with Madame la Comtesse. Then, when she sold the villa this spring, I consented to remain on with the English milor. Never did I imagine the magistrate cut her short. Without a doubt, without a doubt. Now, Francois, in this matter of the front door, whose business was it to fasten it last night? Mine, monsieur. I always saw to it myself. And last night? I fastened it as usual. You were sure of that? I swear it by the blessed saints, monsieur. What time would that be? The same time as usual, half past ten, monsieur. What about the rest of the household? Had they gone up to bed? Madame had retired some time before. Denise and Leone went up with me. Monsieur was still in his study. Then, if anyone unfastened the door afterward, it must have been Monsieur Renault himself. Francois shrugged her broad shoulders. What should he do that for? With robbers and assassins passing every minute? A nice idea. Monsieur was not an imbecile. It is not as though he had had to let set down out. The magistrate interrupted sharply. Set down? What lady do you mean? Why, the lady who came to see him. Had a lady been to see him that evening? But yes, monsieur, and many other evenings as well. Who was she? Did you know her? A rather cunning look spread over the woman's face. How should I know who it was? She grumbled. I did not let her in last night. Aha! roared the examining magistrate, bringing his hands down with a bang on the table. You would trifle with the police, would you? I demand that you tell me at once the name of this woman who came to visit Monsieur Renault in the evenings. The police, the police, grumbled Francois. Never did I think that I should be mixed up with the police, but I know well enough who she was. It was Madame Dobrel. The commissary uttered an exclamation and leaned forward as though in utter astonishment. Madame Dobrel, from the Villa Marguerite just down the road. That is what I said, monsieur. Well, she is a pretty one, c'est la la. The old woman tossed her head scornfully. Madame Dobrel, murmured the commissary, impossible. Voila, grumbled Francois. That is all you get for telling the truth. 
Not at all, said the examining magistrate soothingly. We were surprised, that is all. Madame Dubrawl then, and Monsieur Renault, they were. He paused delicately. It was that, without a doubt. How should I know? But what will you? Monsieur, he was very rich, and Madame Dobrel, she was poor, that one, and très chic for all that she lived so quietly with her daughter. Not a doubt of it, she has had her history. She is no longer young, but ma foi. I, who speak to you, have seen the men's heads turn after she goes down the street. Besides, lately, she has had more money to spend, all the town knows it. The little economies, they are at an end. And Francois shook her head with an air of unalterable certainty. Monsieur Hotet stroked his beard reflectively. And Madame Renault, he asked at length, how did she take this friendship? Francois shrugged her shoulders. She was always most amiable, most polite. One would say that she suspected nothing, but all the same, is it not so the heart suffers, monsieur? Day by day, I have watched Madame grow paler and thinner. She was not the same woman who arrived here a month ago. Monsieur, too, has changed. He also had his worries. One could see that he was on the brink of a crisis of the nerves, and who could wonder, with an affair conducted such a fashion? No reticence, no discretion, style anglaise without a doubt. I bounded, indignantly in my seat, but the examining magistrate was continuing his questions, undistracted by side issues. You say that Monsieur Renault had not to let Madame de Brol out? Had she left then? Yes, Monsieur. I heard them come out of the study and go to the door. Monsieur said good night and shut the door after her. What time was that? About twenty-five minutes after ten. Do you know when Monsieur went to bed? I heard him come up about ten minutes after we did. The stair creaks so that one hears everyone who goes up and down. And that is all. He heard no sound of disturbance during the night. Nothing whatever, monsieur. Which of the servants came down first in the morning? I did. At once I saw the door swinging open. What about the other downstairs windows? Were they all fastened? Every one of them. There was nothing suspicious or out of place anywhere. Good, Francois, you can go. The old woman shuffled toward the door. On the threshold, she looked back. I will tell you one thing, Monsieur. That Madame Dobrel, she is a bad one. Oh yes, one woman knows about another. She is a bad one, remember that. And shaking her head sagely, Francois left the room. 
Leonie Ullard, called the magistrate. Leonie appeared dissolved in tears and inclined to be hysterical. Hotet dealt with her adroitly. Her evidence was mainly concerned with the discovery of her mistress gagged and bound, of which she gave rather an exaggerated account. She, like Francois, had heard nothing during the night. Her sister Denise succeeded her. She agreed that her master had changed greatly of late. Every day he became more and more morose. He ate less. He was always depressed. But Denise had her own theory. Without a doubt, it was the mafia he had on his track. Two masked men. Who else could it be? A terrible society, that. It is, of course, possible, said the magistrate smoothly. Now, my girl... Was it you who admitted Madame Dobrel to the house last night? Not last night, monsieur. The night before. But Francois has just told me that Madame Dobrel was here last night. No. A lady did come to see Monsieur Renault last night, but it was not Madame Dobrel. Surprised, the magistrate insisted, but the girl held firm. She knew Madame Dubrel perfectly by sight. This lady was dark also, but shorter and much younger. Nothing could shake her statement. Had you ever seen this lady before? Never, monsieur. And then the girl added diffidently, but I think she was English. English? Yes. She asked for Monsieur Renault in quite good French, but the accent. One can always tell it, n'est-ce pas? Besides, when they came out of the study, they were speaking in English. Did you hear what they said? Could you understand it, I mean? Me? I speak the English very well, said Denise with pride. The lady was speaking too fast for me to catch what she said, but I heard Monsieur's last words as he opened the door for her. She paused, and then repeated carefully and laboriously, Yes, yes, but for God's sake, go now. Yes, yes, but for God's sake, go now, repeated the magistrate. He dismissed Denise and, after a moment or two for consideration, recalled Francois. To her, he propounded the question as to whether she had not made a mistake in fixing the night of Madame Dobreau's visit. Francois, however, proved unexpectedly obstinate. It was last night that Madame Dobreau had come. Without a doubt it was she. Denise wished to make herself interesting, voila tout, that is all. So she had cooked up this fine tale about a strange lady, airing her knowledge of English too. Probably Monsieur had never spoken that sentence in English at all, and even if he had, it proved nothing, 
for Madame Dubrel spoke English perfectly, and generally used that language when talking to Monsieur and Madame Renault. You see, Monsieur Jacques, the son of Monsieur was usually here, and he spoke the French very badly. The magistrate did not insist. Instead, he inquired about the chauffeur, and learned that only yesterday, Renault had declared that he was not likely to use the car, and that masters might just as well take a holiday. A perplexed frown was beginning to gather between Poirot's eyes. What is it, I whispered. He shook his head impatiently and asked a question. Pardon, Monsieur Bex, but without a doubt, Monsieur Renault could drive the car himself. The commissary looked over at Francois, and the old woman replied promptly, No, Monsieur did not drive himself. Poirot's frown deepened. I wish you would tell me what is worrying you, I said impatiently. See you not. In his letter, Monsieur Renault speaks of sending the car for me to Calais. Perhaps he meant a hired car, I suggested. Doubtless that is so, but why hire a car when you have one of your own? Why choose yesterday to send away the chauffeur on a holiday, suddenly, at a moment's notice? Was it that for some reason he wanted him out of the way before we arrived?